this evening we've got to have a really interesting talk about um, artificial intelligence. And I mean, I'm sure all of you will hear about artificial intelligence all the time. Um, I mean, these days you can't open a newspaper or switch on the TV without hearing something about it. And often it's about the kind of great promise that AI holds, but often it's also about the kind of threat and the risks that AI might pose to us. So, so what do we do? Well, um, at Cambridge, um, we're very fortunate that we have lots of different researchers working on artificial intelligence. Some of the people that kind of work to create the technology behind it, but also researchers that actually look at the issues themselves and what should we be doing about them. Um, so fortunately this evening, um, we can <coughs> welcome Dr. Adrian Weller, um, who is an expert on building trust and transparency in this area. So um, Dr. Weller is a senior research fellow in the machine learning group at the University of Cambridge, um, but also leads the Trust and Transparency Project at the Leeds Hume Centre for, for Future of Intelligence at Cambridge. I think all the publications are up there. Um, but he's also the um, Programme Director for Artificial Intelligence at the Alan Turing Institute. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before I do hand over to Dr. Weller, just to mention that um, this event is joint between Cambridge Science Festival and Research Horizons. So Research Horizons is the research magazine that the university produces. Um, we did hope to have some coffees with us today, um, but actually all the content is on the website. So if you go to cam.ac.uk, you should see some fascinating content um, about all about AI and the kind of different aspects uh, to it, as well as other research that goes on at Cambridge. Um, anyway, I'd now like to hand over to Dr. Weller, um, so please welcome him for this evening's talk. Thanks very much. Can everyone hear me? Yes, yes? fantastic. Um, thanks very much for coming out on, a, on an evening, and I hope, uh, I hope you won't be disappointed. Um, so let me, we, we heard the name Alan Turing mentioned. Uh, let me just say a few things specifically about him. Uh, first, who's heard of Alan Turing? Good, 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 fantastic hero. And as you probably know, he was an undergraduate here at King's um, in the 30s. And then he was elected a fellow, actually, when he was quite young. Does anyone know on what basis he was elected a fellow? He actually provided a, an early proof of the central limit theorem. So um, he did lots of good work. Um, if this becomes difficult, please just shout out. Um, he, 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 of course, did um, cru crucial early work in computer science and was uh, he was uh, uh, one of the main people that was involved in cracking the Enigma code during the Second World War, which helped the Allies win. Um, and he was one of the, the people, along with, uh, of course, many others, who, whose work helped to define the field of AI. And um, speaking of definitions, um, often, it's, we're often asked to, to try to define what exactly AI means. There is, unfortunately, no, clear def no clearly accepted definition. Um, loosely speaking, it would be uh, the study of machines which act in intelligent ways or would be ways in which we considered intelligent were a human to do them. But any definition uh, might be a little bit unsatisfactory in various ways. So I'll start by, just by, by showing some examples of the sorts of applications of AI which we are already seeing all around us. And much of this is based on huge progress in the capabilities of these systems we've seen in the last few years. So it's an exciting time for AI. Um, we, we have automatic speech recognition. Many of you are probably familiar with 
uh, systems such as Siri or Alexa, where you can speak to them and they often can understand reasonably well what, what you're telling them. We even have devices which even just 10 years ago might have seemed like science fiction where you can speak in one language into a device and pretty much in real time a, uh, a live translation will be coming out in a different language. So fantastic, that's a fantastic application. In computer vision, we now have algorithms which over the last few years have reached the point where they can, in certain settings, um, achieve human level accuracy at recognizing objects. So here we've got an example of, uh, of labeling certain parts of an image to, to let us know what they are, or face detection, probably many of you might use some sort of application or program to help you organize your photos, and it's very convenient that the, uh, that the code can figure out who's in the picture. Perhaps more impressively, uh, we, we already now have algorithms which can look at images like the one shown here and actually attach labels which seem really quite meaningful. So this one on the left is automatically being given this label that says man in black shirt is playing guitar. Quite an impressive label. Or here, two young girls are playing with Legos toys. So that's very impressive, but we should keep in mind, as we'll talk about more later, that these systems are quite brittle. They don't really have uh, any, any sense of a deep understanding about what's actually going on in, inside these images. So uh, although it's, it's, it's giving this label, um, it wouldn't know anything about, for example, what would happen if you, if you tried to push that house, would it fall over, or what it really means to play with Legos. But it's, it's a label still which is, which is useful and is somewhat impressive. Scientific data analysis. So, so AI already is helping us make real progress in areas of fundamental science. For example, by looking at lots of data on, um, uh, uh, on um, diseases and genomic information, genetic information, and the kinds of symptoms which people have, there's hope to find cures for diseases. Uh, we're also able to analyze uh, data that we get from astronomical devices to do things like discover new planets or to uh, make other observations about parts of the universe that are very far away. And that, that typically involves looking for tiny signals amid vast seas of, of noisy data. Recommender systems, probably all familiar with being recommended products by Amazon or maybe on Netflix. And these are getting better and better at really making very personalized recommendations to us about the sorts of things which uh, which we might actually want to, to buy or see, although as many of you might, might uh, recognize, they're not perfect yet, but still, they do recommend things which are, which are pretty good. And um, we, we may touch later on one of the concerns here, which is that by, um, by learning more and more about us and then making these personalized recommendations at scale, um, there's a concern that the companies are really incentivized to get us to click on things. They're trying to appeal to our immediate instincts of what we, what we might respond to, although that may not necessarily be in our long-term best interest or in the best interest of society. So that's something to keep in mind. Another application probably many of you are familiar with is that um, over, over the last decade or so, now almost, uh, almost all trading in liquid securities it happens on electronic exchanges where trading algorithms from different companies compete against each other in real time in this very high stakes area of trying to make money. So um, most of the time this works very effectively and we have deep liquid markets which function well. But from time to time things can go a little bit haywire. Some of you may be familiar with what was called the flash crash in May 2010 where the stock market in just a few minutes dropped 9% and came back. 
So this is actually a bit of a theme that we, we will touch on a bit later, that um, we really want to have systems which are going to perform robustly at scale. And as, is all right? um, as we get uh, systems which may increasingly happen where there are AI agents out in the wild that are competing against each other, it sometimes it can be hard to predict exactly what kinds of consequences might occur. So that's, that's a bit of an issue. Computer games, uh, who here saw the uh, ability, this was, a, this was a, a big story a few years ago, that DeepMind developed a program which was able to learn many different games and quite quickly get to human or even superhuman levels of ability. Who saw that story? Good, 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 quite a, quite a few of you. So this was uh, quite exciting because it was a first tiny step in the direction of developing a program which had more than the very narrowest intelligence. I'm going to argue that still this is quite a narrow AI application, but it, it was very slightly less narrow than many things we'd seen before in the following sense. So they built one computer program, and then this one computer program could be shown any one of about 50 different classic Atari games from the 80s. Some folks here may remember those. It's sort of game shown here. And just by playing by itself against the computer and just be, by being able to look at the pixels on the screen, and, and playing around to see what happens as it tried to move around, it would be able to learn over a few days how to get very good at that game. And the same program could be started on any one of these 50 different games, and it would get good at almost all of them. So that was really quite impressive. We'll talk more about it later. Although it's impressive, again, actually it's quite brittle in certain ways, which we'll talk about. Big story many of you may have heard about last year, again from DeepMind, was that they had great success, great success first with a program called AlphaGo. Who heard about AlphaGo? Great, and there's, there's, a, there's actually a pretty good documentary movie you can watch on Netflix about it, which focuses on some of the human drama around it, because it's quite exciting. They have this world champion Go player who's defeated by a computer, and, he, and at first he feels very bad that he's let down humanity about it. And, Quite, it's quite a, a good story. So they first made AlphaGo, which, which became the best Go, play, Go player in the world, which was very impressive because many people thought for a long time that Go was, in some sense, the, uh, the sort of ultimate challenge of a game which was very hard to get a computer to play, and humans still beat the best computers. But they, they, their, their algorithm beat the best person in the world at Go, and then they went on to, again, generalize it a little bit. They made something called AlphaZero, which, um, which had significantly less specific knowledge about Go built into it. Still had actually quite a bit of knowledge built into it, but significantly less. And the same program, left to its own devices to play against itself, after a while got much better than the previous version, but also the same program, instead of learning Go, was, was, was given the rules of chess, and again, starting from scratch, or just starting from the, the knowledge that was built into it, which was not exactly scratch, um, but, but was something, but the same program was able to get incredibly good at chess and become the world's best chess program. So that's really quite an amazing achievement. Arguably, it, more impressive not that it became so good at chess compared to humans, because computers have already been better than humans at chess for quite a while, but it turned out that it was able to learn how to beat the other programs that people had spent a lot of time developing custom-made to be good at chess. So it started, it was a much more general approach which could get to uh, the best in the world level at both Go and chess. Really quite impressive. Many of these breakthroughs, uh, many of the applications we've, that we've seen are based on something called deep learning. So who's heard about deep learning? 
Okay, not as many as I would have thought, but quite a few of you. Um, so let me just briefly talk about uh, what deep learning is. Essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a system which is based on neural network models that go back many decades, but we've had some improvements. So there have been some architectural algorithmic improvements, um, but there have been, been two very big things that have really improved the performance of these systems. One is vastly larger data sets, so there's just a lot more data which, which, is, um, which is available um, from all kinds of activity on the web, much more now than there was before. And this amount of data is increasing exponentially. We've also seen exponential increase in the uh, computational ability, which we're able to throw at these problems. And it turns out, this wasn't obvious um, at the beginning, but it turns out that with these deep learning models, the more data you throw at them and the more computational re resource you throw at them, they, they, so far they seem to keep getting better and better. Whereas some of the other systems which we've developed seem to sort of asymptote at a level which isn't as good. So they may have been better on small data sets, but as we get more and more data, more and more computing resource, these deep learning models have been very successful in certain domains. And that's quite interesting and exciting because these trends are likely to continue. So even if we don't get algorithmic innovations, we might be able to expect that these systems will continue to get better. We've also seen better software tools. We're seeing a lot of industry investment. Uh, and some would argue that we're seeing some degree of hype. So there are some limitations to deep learning systems. Let me just point out some of these which are important to know about. First, they, they, uh, they're very data hungry. So often, the way that you train them is you need to give them millions of examples, each of which has been labeled, often by humans. That can be very, uh, very intensive in terms of uh, human activity. They're also very compute intensive to train and deploy. That's an, an active area of research is how to try and make them more efficient. They're not so good at representing uncertainty, which we'll talk about uh, a bit more soon. They can be easily fooled by adversarial examples. I'm easily fooled by this microphone. Okay. Let me try again. They're easily fooled by adversarial examples, and, and we'll talk more about that on the next slide. Can you hear me still? Great. Uh, they're a little tricky to optimize, and another topic we'll talk about later is that in many, in many cases there are uninterpretable black boxes. It's very hard to figure out exactly what they're doing and how it is that they're achieving the good results which they generate. So let me show you an example of uh, adversarial, um, adversarial examples. This, this, is, this was the first time that these were pointed out, which was in 2015. So imagine we've trained a deep learning system so that it can look at many different images and it can label them successfully. So think about on the order of 10,000 different image classes, including lots of different animals. You show it this image on the left, which to us does look like a panda, and it's quite reasonable that this model um, has a 57.7% confidence that it's seeing a panda. That's actually pretty good, because remember there are on the order of 10,000 different possible labels. So it's really quite confident it's a panda, which is quite right. But this is the disturbing thing. You then take this image in the middle, which to us looks like gobbledygook, just looks like weird noise, and you take a tiny amount of it, so there's 0.007 amount of this weird picture in the middle. You add it to the original image on the left to give you the image on the right, which to us is completely indistinguishable from the image on the left. So to us, we look at the image on the right and we say, of course, that's still a panda. But the algorithm is very confused. It now thinks there's a 99% chance of being a gibbon. Completely ridiculous to us. And what's happened is that this, this weird image in the middle is... Um, it's, it's something which, which has been tweaked in order to push the input image exactly 
uh, in the direction and sort of gradient which is gonna make the model think that it's a given. It's been specially chosen to be that. You, you could have optimized to go in a different direction. It still would have looked like noise. You could have chosen to make it think it was almost anything. Uh, and it still would have been imperceptibly different to, to us humans. So this shows that they're not operating in a way that, uh, that is really similar to a human. And that means we need to be very careful. It shows, it shows that they can be quite brittle in particular ways, and that can make us nervous about trusting them. Imagine that, um, well, let, let, me, let, me, let, let me show you an example in a second. Here, this looks like it's maybe quite a weird artificial example that wouldn't happen in the real world. But let me show you a more recent example, uh, which is maybe more disturbing. You, um, this, this is a real world situation. So this, what I'm gonna show you is video of, a, of a, an autonomous vehicle system that's gonna drive towards, might be able to just about make out the stop sign. I may have to show it to you a few times because it happens quite quickly. Um, so you see, it's driving, these are two different situations. It's both a stop sign. The one on the right is a, is a normal stop sign. The one on the left has been modified cunningly to have a, a little bit of black and white tape on it. I don't know if you can just about see. It's got some black and white tape at the bottom of the stop sign. And what we're showing at the bottom there is what the algorithm is seeing. So you'll see on the right, the algorithm sees a stop sign the whole way through. On the left though, instead of seeing the stop sign, it thinks it's a, it says speed limit 45 and it just keeps going at it. It only changes, it only recognizes the stop sign when it gets very close and then it changes back again to, to speed limit. So when it, the, when it, by the time it recognizes stop, it's, it would be too late and it would be bound to hit it. So this is really quite worrying in the real world and shows that we need to, to really figure out what's going on and take some, um, take some actions to, to make sure this sort of thing cannot happen if we're gonna trust these systems. I would say that aside from deep learning, there are many other valuable fields in machine learning and AI. So here are just some of them, lots, lots of different approaches. And there's exciting work in all these areas, even though you may hear about it less than the, the things that are going on in deep learning. But it is true that overall, the machine learning research paradigm typically has been that you train your algorithm on some data that you have in the lab, and then you assume that it's gonna be tested on data which is so-called IID. It's gonna be identically distributed and independent, just like the data you've seen. So that's what we've been used to doing in, in machine learning research. But of course, that's not what happens in the real world. You may see data that's very different from what you've seen before, and we need to, uh, we need to really be very careful to, um, to do everything we can to ensure that we can get to a situation where we'll be able to trust these, these systems to perform robustly at scale in the real world. So one way to try to do this is, uh, to, to, uh, is, is to take a probabilistic uh, approach to modeling uncertainty. This is, this is one particular strength of the Cambridge Machine Learning Group. And the idea is that um, if you know what you don't know, then you can, uh, you can realize that you're in, a, you're in a situation where you're not quite sure what to do, and you could switch to some kind of safe fallback mechanism. So for example, in an autonomous vehicle, you could just try to glide to a halt because you realize, oh, I don't really know what's going on. In addition, if you, if you can model uncertainty, you can actually use that measure of uncertainty to help guide you to figure out what new information you should want to learn in order to improve your performance uh, most efficiently. That, that is, in a sense, you, you have a sort of artificial curiosity. And um, that's the idea that we show here in something called Bayesian optimization. So the idea, I'll just describe it briefly, is, is that you might be trying to maximize some objective that's shown with these blue curves. You can see some dots on there. If you see three dots on the blue curve on the left, those are where you, we, we've made measurements, and given those measurements, um, 
we're, we're not sure what the function value will be at the points we haven't been able to sample yet. And so you see that there's the sort of, uh, the, the, the light blue parts around it are showing, are showing the uncertainty estimate we have around the value at those different places. So you see there's more uncertainty when you get further away from the dots. And then given, uh, in this case, if, if what we're trying to do is to try to find the point which maximizes this function, we can use something called an acquisition function, which is shown at the bottom, which tries to figure out which point should we try next. So where, sh where should we have another go at looking next in order to um, have the best chance of getting the, the maximum point? So that takes into account the information we've learned already about the values we've seen from those points and also our uncertainty estimates about what's going on. So another example, which we'll come to in a minute that relates to this, um, is, uh, is thinking about um, predictive maintenance. So imagine you've got a bridge, and it might be quite expensive for you to go to one part of the bridge and really try and repair it and see whether everything's okay there. Um, you'd want to try and find the point on the bridge where you are most concerned there might be a problem, and then it's a bit expensive to do that operation, but after you've done that, you might actually realize maybe there's a different point in the bridge that you should be looking at next. So this idea is useful for many projects. I thought I would just show you a picture here. These are some projects which, which Turing is working on. Um, and the ideas we just described can be applied to, to many of these areas. For example, anomaly detection. You see this picture uh, at the left in the middle row. Um, if you've learned from some training data, you've got, you, you're, you're going to be less uncertain when you see points similar to the ones you've already seen. But if you come across something quite different, you'll be able to flag it up and know that it's, it's something which is odd. So this can be very helpful, for example, in cybersecurity or fraud detection, or like we said, in predictive maintenance. Cancer detection is becoming a, a really exciting uh, area for, for artificial intelligence. We can take, um, take x-rays or other uh, radiology images, and we can have algorithms apply their computer vision, um, computer vision applications, like the ones we saw before, to try to recognize whether someone might or might not have cancer. But it would be very important for us to understand actually how confident is the model in assessing that. Because of course, if it makes a mistake, it would be it would be a real problem. And the uh, one at the top left is a very cool one. Um, that has this gone off? We'll just keep going. Well, it's sorry, it's a bit intermittent. <laughs> There's significant uncertainty as to whether it's working. So let, let me just show you this thing on the top left because it, it's it's a really cool project. It's just cool to watch it. Um, so th this is showing a robot that actually is in real life being used to 3D print a bridge across a canal in, in, in Amsterdam. So these, these are busy working away, and they're actually figuring out as they go along um, the best way to try to construct this bridge. For example, should they be going top down or bottom up because gravity affects it? Should they go right, left? And um, they're also placing sensors in the bridge to, to enable better predictive maintenance, as we were talking about before. Just a, it's a, cool, a cool project. So that is actually happening right now, and it will be the largest 3D printed metal structure in the world, um, and the only 3D printed actual bridge in the world. So we, we've, we've seen that algorithms are already capable of doing certain tasks very well. But here are some big research challenges about things which we really can't do very well yet. We've talked about the first one a bit, and we're, we're making some progress on one. Um, but we're really very far still from being able to, to do some things which even a young child can manage easily. Like these other, other, other tasks here. So the ability to learn transferable concepts across different but related data sets. So learn in one domain, 
uh, and be able to abstract that concept away and apply it in a different domain. I'll give a, give an, a concrete example about that in a minute. Um, we want to be able to exploit those transferable concepts so that we can uh, get better predictions even if we don't have big data because we've, we've sort of built some prior knowledge about how things work. And we'd love to really build a sense of, of common sense understanding. So to give an example, this is uh, the, the algorithm that I talked about before by DeepMind. You still okay at the back? Yeah. Great, great. Um, so it, it's playing by itself and it's getting a little bit better. And sorry. And after a while, it's, 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 it's getting, you can see it's getting better and better at bouncing this ball around. What it's trying to do is bounce the ball to knock these bricks in the wall down in the most efficient way possible. Um, and it's just going along doing its thing. And pretty soon, it's going to figure out for itself uh, a, very, uh, a very interesting strategy, which those of you who have played this game, um, those of you who remember it, might have discovered for yourself. So now it realizes that actually it's a great strategy to try to tunnel through the wall and get the ball to bounce around the back as it locks out lots of bricks. And, and, and you'll see it's about to do this. <coughs> there it goes. <laughs> So this is a very effective strategy. And one thing that was interesting is that this, this algorithm was developed by people young enough not to have played the game. And they actually, <laughs> they didn't know about the strategy. So this was, in a sense, a kind of creativity. So that, that, that's very exciting. And, and it's all very good. But now let me show you actually uh, how we can see that it's actually still a very, very brittle what's going on. So suppose you take that algorithm after it's learned to play really well in that environment. And then you just change something, which to us would seem like a really tiny thing. So suppose you add an additional layer in the middle of a really hard wall. Or suppose you just move the bat a little bit closer to the wall. Or here you, you've knocked out part of the wall, so the game is not exactly the same. So to us, we, would, we wouldn't be too bothered. We think, well, I've got quite good at moving the bat around, and I know how to bounce the ball around. Um, but this program hasn't learned any of that really at all. It's, it's learned in a very different way. So if you, if you make one of these small changes, the algorithm is completely flummoxed and basically has to start again from scratch. So it hasn't developed any generalizable notion of abstract concepts. Uh, another example, something which we humans can do very easily, but is very challenging for algorithms. This is, this is a notion of uh, another example of, of learning concepts. So you see at the left, who knows what a segue is? Good, M most of you. So it's this thing and you can stand on it and ride around and some people think it's cool and some people don't think it's cool. Um, but when we've seen one of them, we get a sense of what it means. We got a sense of how, you know, we know how many wheels it has, we got a sense of how it moves, what it does, what its purpose is. And then we can quickly see in the patterns below, hopefully you can, you can pick out that there are two others, two other segues that are shown there. And the other things are not segues, even though they might have two wheels or they might move people around. But computer finds that very difficult because it hasn't got that common sense notion of what's going on. Uh, on the right, you can see this, this is the first character of the Bengali alphabet. And uh, even though, e even for those of us who are, who are not that familiar with Bengali, um, you can probably see that there are two copies of that below, but the other things are not that same character. And that's based on our prior knowledge of the way that people, people's handwriting likely uh, leads to different kinds of shapes. Again, computers are, are no good at that. And uh, this is just to show another reason why this is important. So we really, um, so clearly this is a challenging environment even for a human to drive in. But the point is that, that we really want to be able to train um, an artificial intelligence system like, like potentially an autonomous vehicle 
to be able to form in any environment. You're never going to be able to train it in every possible state of the world. Um, you, you, hopefully, it's going to do better than that. <laughs> the, the point is that you, you're, going to you're going to train it in certain environments, and you want it to be able to generalize effectively. And that's a really difficult challenge. Just so some, some other quick examples of uh, ways in which um, these, these, the, even the, the latest algorithms are, are poor common sense understanding. So you see, this is an automatically generated label. It, it claims that it's seeing a close look at a hillside next to a rocky hill with tags of things like grazing sheep and giraffe. <laughs> um, actually, if you, if you half close your eyes and kind of squint a bit, uh, maybe this seems a bit more reasonable. Um, you can sort of see that this kind of image where you might see sheep and you can sort of see that there might be a giraffe on the left. Um, but, but, but this algorithm has no understanding of, of how these animals function in the way that we humans would do. So actually, now if, if, you, if there are some sheep, some baby sheep, some lambs, if a child picks it up, the system now thinks that it's a dog because it's seen lots of images of people holding dogs that look like this. It hasn't seen people holding many lambs like this. Uh, and this, this idea that the algorithm is relying on the training data is an important theme we'll, we'll come back to a little later. And now actually, finally, if we paint the sheep orange, <laughs> now the system thinks that they're, they're flowers because to it, this, is, this is close to the sort of things it's seen. So again, it has no real, real common sense. And a different example of common sense that it's missing, this is from an article in The Atlantic by Douglas Hofstadter. Some of you may know the, the famous book Gödel Escher Bach that he wrote. So he wrote this article uh, just in January. Uh, at the left, there's a, a bit of English text. Uh, in their house, everything comes in pairs. So this paragraph is important about pairs. There's his car, her car, his towels, her towels. It's translated into French, and it's translated correctly, linguistically, locally. Uh, but the problem is that in French, it turns out that the words for his and her, that they don't agree in gender with the possessor, as they do in English, but actually with the item which is possessed. And it makes no sense in French. In the savoir is savoir It's true, that does mean his and her, but it's totally lost the, the sense of the original. So it has no real deep understanding of what's going on. So we've seen that current systems lack common sense understanding, but still they can perform very well. But what we'd like to understand is how do they really work? We'd, li we'd like some ways to, uh, to be able to understand that to help us know when we can trust them. So that leads us to the issue of transparency and interpretability. Complex systems can be difficult to understand. We, we often want to, want to find a way to go under the hood to see what's going on <coughs> underneath. What is transparency? First, let, let, me, uh, let me say that in some ways, transparency is a bit like fairness. Both are ideas which most people like the sound of, but they can mean different things to different people in different contexts. So here's a picture on the left, and uh, just warning that I've got a bad joke coming up. So. Um, on the left, you can see there's a guy, uh, there's a grown-up man on a swing, and there's a young girl behind that, and he's saying to her, fair is fair, Amanda, now you push me. And so clearly he has maybe a different view of fairness to, to the one that she has. So we might suggest that fairness is the sort of thing that you know it when you see it. Whereas transparency, anyone? Sort of thing you know when you don't see it. That's the bad joke, sorry. Okay, but more seriously, uh, here are just some of the important types of transparency that which, which we care about, uh, among others. So very important to have some transparency for a developer to understand how the system is working, when, when is it likely to work well, when is it likely to work badly, so they, they can, they can uh, improve the system and perhaps debug the system. 
Very important for a user to understand often why one particular prediction or decision was reached to allow a check that the system worked uh, properly and also uh, to allow meaningful challenge. Um, for example, if you're turned down for a loan by a bank or, or more importantly for criminal sentencing, which we'll come back to a bit later. And this idea of being able to understand one particular prediction or decision is sometimes called local interpretability because you're only, interpret you're only providing a local explanation. A third kind of transparency would be for uh, an expert who might be a regulator to, uh, to be able to order what happens if perhaps something goes wrong. So imagine you have an autonomous vehicle and you have a crash. You might want to require that perhaps you keep records of the last 10 seconds, all the different data streams, which, which it records a bit like you have a black box on a plane, that someone could step through everything that happened to try and, try and assign liability, understand what went wrong. Each type of transparency here motivates different measures, uh, and all of them can be hard to define precisely. So this is the beginning of, a, of, a, of an open challenge set of issues. We really need to think carefully about how to define these um, and then try to improve our ways of measuring them. <coughs> Let me tell you about two themes, two, two main research themes in transparency of AI systems. So one theme is you, you say, okay, we're gonna restrict the model class we're gonna learn to be sufficiently simple that it's gonna be easy to understand. An example is, uh, is often given as decision trees. A different approach might sound a bit weird at first, but actually it's, it's used quite a lot and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's a very helpful approach. So don't restrict your model class. Instead, learn the best model you can. It can be as complex as you like. Just optimize it for whatever it is that you're trying to do. And then build a second AI model to try to explain the first model to you. So quite an interesting idea. Let's, let's first talk about theme one, and we'll talk about decision trees. We're going, to, we're going to conduct an experiment. This is uh, from a, uh, a tutorial by Bean Kim and, and, uh, and Finale Doshi Velas. So I'm going to show you a decision tree, and I want you to try to follow the appropriate path, and then you do one of these actions, okay? So either put up your right hand or your left hand or stomp with your feet or clap, depending on what happens to it. So let, let's do this one together, get you, get you in the mood. This, this is clearly a very simple decision tree. So suppose the input data is an AL and ICML, that's International Conference on Machine Learning, the big machine learning conference. Given that input data, okay, is the animal an owl? Yes or no? Yes. So we go this way. Is the conference ICML? Yes. So what do we do? Good. Have we got the hang of that? <laughs> okay. So here's experiment one. As soon as you figure it out, please try to do what it says. We've got some disagreements, so maybe let's go through it. <laughs> so, it's 2017, so is it less than 2015? No. And is it Australia? Yeah, yeah sorry. You, can, you have to look at the input stream. We're not, we're, not, we're not saying think about where we are right now. You have to look at this input. So, so it is Australia, according to the input. So the answer for this one is stop. You see already, it's, it's a bit tricky. <laughs> Okay, um, here's a more complicated one. <laughs> and here's another more complicated one. So you can get the idea that even something which people think is simple to understand can rapidly become quite hard. Um, now having said that, there still are some fairly simple models which can be, uh, which can be effective and understandable, but, uh, and, and when those can apply in a situation, we should use them. But they're not necessarily gonna work very well in, in, in lots of areas which you might want to be good at. Let me show you something about the second theme. So remember, this is where we build a second model to explain the first model. And one popular family for this approach are, are called a family of methods called saliency approaches. 
So here our first model is going to be an image classifier, which is going to try to learn the difference between a husky, as shown on the left, and a wolf, as shown on the right. So we're going to learn from lots of training data like this that's been hand-labeled by a person. And you can see that a wolf and husky look pretty similar. Obviously, there are some, some subtle differences in coloring and maybe some other subtle differences. And it turns out the algorithm actually can learn pretty well from this data and have generally high accuracy. Then when you're given this after, when you've got the, 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 the learn model and you're given one test image, the classifier will tell you what it thinks it is, and then the saliency method will try to tell you which parts of the input image are most salient, to, that which parts are most important for that model to figure out what it is that it's seeing. And let's, let's see an example. So suppose we see this image on the left. This is um, obviously clearly a husky. Um, maybe not so clear to all of you, but I can assure you it is a husky. <laughs> but it's been misclassified as a wolf. And can any of you guess as to why it was misclassified as a wolf? Sorry? Slanted eyes, good guess. Any other guesses? Background color, very good. So it, you would hope it would be something like, uh, like the eyes, but it turns out, this, this explanation shows you, it was actually just the snow in the background. Okay, so, so, this, so that's very worrying, right? But it's very useful to have a model like this to tell you this, because if you, if you didn't do this, what you would do is you would train on lots of data, you'd have some held out data to test on, on the test data it would perform very well, but then you might go in the real world and you might have a real problem. The, the, the issue was that the training data had, like we showed here, all of the wolves were shown with snow in the background, and all the huskies didn't have snow in the background. Um, and you might easily have missed that if you didn't have a system like this to tell you. So this is one useful tool. Um, we're, we're running a bit short on time, so I'm going to skip over this. Let me point out, this is, this is an important point. When you get an explanation, we can differentiate between the intended audience of an explanation and the beneficiary of an explanation. So uh, as an example, uh, when Amazon recommends a product to you, it, it used to be, they stopped doing this about a year ago, I think, they used to actually give you an explanation as to why they gave you that explanation if you asked for it. And it would say something like, well, we're recommending book X to you because you read book Y and you enjoyed it and, you're, and some, someone else liked book X. You know, it'll, it'll give you some short explanation like that. <coughs> actually, I think we all know that under the hood, Amazon's doing something more complicated than that. So it's not really telling us faithfully what its algorithm is doing. It's telling us something. And why is it telling that to us? Well, its motivation is really to make us feel good and get us to buy the book. <laughs> and so we need to be careful about this. You know? But, but it's, it's a difficult problem. How, do, how can we really define when an explanation truly is faithful? And we should recognize that humans don't always give faithful explanations ourselves. So this is, this is one open problem. And just uh, as another example to, to, to show why this is important, who knows about the copy machine study from the 70s? famous experiment in psychology from 1978. So what happened was that there's the, uh, this was in the day when people went to libraries and they had a photocopier in the library. People were standing in line to use the photocopier. And the experiment was to have people try to push in line uh, for the photocopier. And they would either give no reason, they would just say, could you let me in? And then you can see 60% of the time, someone would let them in. Or they would give a reason. They would say, please could you let me in? I'm in a real hurry. And when they gave that reason, they'd be let in 94% of the time. But here's the interesting bit. If they gave a, a fake reason, that is, if they gave a reason that really had zero informational content, they would say, could you let me in because I need to make a photocopy? <laughs> no information there. Still, people would let them in. 
93% of the time, it makes no difference. So somehow we need to be very careful. When we're given an explanation, we're, we're susceptible to just agreeing to people. We feel like we should. So again, we have to be careful about explanations. Let's skip over that. So just, just noting so far, there are different kinds of transparency with different motivations, and we need to find good ways to measure them. Sometimes an explanation could be abused as a manipulation channel. Um, and in some settings, we didn't have time to go into this, but uh, more transparency can actually lead to less efficiency. Just take my word for it. <laughs> an important point, we should recognize that sometimes transparency is a means to an end, not a goal in itself. So people often, you might often hear people saying, if we're going to build autonomous vehicles, we need to be able to understand exactly how they're working. But let me suggest that actually, would you rather have a car, an automatic car, which is going to kill 100,000 people a year, and you understand how it works, or one that kills 1,000 people a year, and you don't understand exactly how it works? So you know, sometimes we care more about some, something else, like a safety measure, and it may be better to focus resources on that directly, rather than always worrying about whether it's necessarily completely interpretable. So I'm a fan of transparency, but not in all cases. I'm going to switch topics to something uh, different but very important. The AI which we develop must treat all people fairly. So it mustn't discriminate against any individual or minority subgroup. And this presents significant technical challenges, particularly if we're going to learn from historic data which may reflect past human bias. It's now important in many commercial settings. For example, uh, in selecting whom to interview, often companies will use automated systems to help filter out who, who, who applies and maybe rank the top people to choose for interviews. Uh, or for making a loan, as we've talked about before. And perhaps most importantly, in criminal justice. So algorithms are actually already in use, particularly in the US, to help to decide how long people should be locked up in prison for, or help to decide whether someone should be released on parole. So, of course, it's really important those algorithms treat people fairly. And further, I would suggest that that's one great example for when I think we, we, most of us would agree you really want transparency. If an, if an algorithm says, I think you should be locked up for six years, you'd really want to understand, understand, well, how did it come to that conclusion? Did it follow a reasonable process? And you want to have some ability to meaningfully challenge that decision. So that, that's useful because it gives us some specific criteria that we should aim to have for transparency in those kinds of systems. Let me show an example of how even simple systems can actually have a hard time in, in discriminating, uh, in being discriminatory. Here's, here's it's a person with light skin, and it, it recognizes the soap is, is being dispensed. Someone with dark skin, <laughs> not recognized. So it, it's funny, but obviously this is, this is, this is a concern. Um, and what we're going to see is, is he's going to demonstrate that if he takes a tissue which is white and puts it under the soap dispenser, <laughs> Here comes the soap. <laughs> Hard to see white or white, but there, there it comes. So, um, so <laughs> simple system, but it's, it's so if we're not careful, it's easy for systems to discriminate unintentionally. And the, the same kinds of um, ugly effects can be observed even in cutting edge systems. So uh, I don't know if, if any of you saw this. This was a famous story that went viral uh, a few years ago. Um, it was an image classification system released by Google and uh, obviously terrible and very embarrassing for Google that it was labeling people with dark skin sometimes as being gorillas. Um, and perhaps even more worrying was that not, it wasn't easy to fix that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if 
basically they decided to give up. It was, it was too challenging. They, they were presumably too nervous about keeping a system out there because it might sometimes go wrong. This was the, the, the best solution they came up with. So it can be, these things can be, can be very challenging. Here's another example. Um, there is a, uh, a Harvard professor uh, called Latanya Sweeney. And uh, she showed that actually if you enter black sounding names into a search engine, um, then ads would appear offering to check if you'd been arrested in the past or would you like a criminal background check. So we, we need to think as a society hard about these issues. Um, I mean, actually, many people think that this is a real problem and we need to, to fix it. But also, just, just to, just to um, point out a different perspective, some people would say, well, all that the search engine is doing is it's responding sensibly, statistically, to try to maximize its own revenue. It turns out that people who have particular kinds of names statistically are more likely to want to click on those kinds of adverts. Maybe that's okay. So this is a discussion which we need to have as a society. And in order to have that discussion, we need, uh, we need to be able to explain more carefully to everyone what's going on and help, help make these, these difficult decisions. Finally, one last area that I, that I, that I want to mention is, is this area of, uh, of privacy. So there are fantastic opportunities to learn from user data. For example, in healthcare, uh, we may be able to diagnose conditions at scale cheaply. We may be able to cure diseases in new ways. Um, but we can learn lots of things from people's data. And people have a right to have their privacy appropriately protected. So these are areas of technical, ongoing technical research. In some cases, actually, we can do things which seem a bit magical. It's possible with, with, uh, with new developments, in some cases, to be able to learn models without ever actually having direct access to the data. The areas uh, called homomorphic encryption or secure multi-party computation in some settings can allow us to do that. So this is an important ongoing research area to allow us to enforce appropriate privacy. And let me conclude with, uh, with these observations trying to summarize. It's a very exciting time for AI. Um, big increases in data and computational power together with improvements in algorithms have given us huge opportunities to use these, uh, to use these systems. There's a rapid increase in the use of these systems in areas which affect our everyday lives, including important areas like hiring decisions or criminal justice. And so to get effective de deployment across society, we really need to think very carefully about these fundamental issues. Uh, we we, we, we want to have, uh, I would suggest we want to have certifiable trustworthiness. This is something which uh, Honora O'Neill has called for, and some of you may have heard her, her talk about this. We don't, we don't just want to increase trust in these systems. Um, because sometimes you may trust them too much. We don't want that. We want to have uh, certifiable uh, criteria of trustworthiness in important areas such as robust performance, transparency, fairness, and privacy. Uh, and interest, interestingly, by thinking about these, it also helps us to reflect back on our own capacity for being opaque when we, when we, when we uh, try to explain ourselves or our own potential for bias. And finally, that there are many exciting areas of open research, and these could transform the field, some of the things we touched on earlier, like learning transferable concepts uh, and then using these to learn with small data and gradually building up a sense of common sense reasoning. Thank you. So we do have time for some questions. Yes, sir.
You raise a great point. So when we have children, we don't assume that they're going to behave responsibly when they're little. We want to wait for them to grow up. In some ways we do, and that's the issue is we expect the machines to just behave perfectly. Um, and yeah, yeah, I mean, you could turn this thing around when you said, um, would you like 100,000 people still branching and still out of work? Well, that's fine. Um, I put my trust in things up. I don't know how they work at all. They're called people. I have no idea what they're it's an excellent point. Although I would say, even though it may seem like we often don't have a clue about what someone else is thinking, we have had a situation where we've been evolving together with other people for tens of thousands of years. So typically, and, and we live our lives, we grow up with other people. So although, in a way, we don't really know exactly what they're thinking, we've, we've got a pretty good set of expectations about what they might do. So if you see someone behaving in one situation, you've got some idea of how they might behave in another. And one thing we have to be very careful about with these systems is that they can behave in much more brittle ways than we're used to. As, as the adversarial example we saw before, we see an algorithm which, which can recognize images very well in one domain, and we, we have to be careful not to presume that it'll necessarily be able to, to perform as well in another setting. It might, might fail horribly in another setting. So that, 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 that's one point. Another point is that you're right, maybe we should have lower expectations of them, but if they're being deployed anyway in the world, that's a big concern. So maybe we need more accountability around the people who are deploying them. And one model for accountability relates to, to the point you made. So sh for example, should we, in, in the same way that I'm a father, I have a young kid, I'm responsible for, for, for what they do in, in certain ways. The developers and deployers of these systems should be responsible for the algorithms they release in certain ways. And we need to think very carefully about this. What about them? Is that your question? Yeah. So yeah, so Asimov fam famously came up with uh, three laws of robotics. Do you remember exactly what they are? I'm not sure I remember them. Yeah, so, so the, the idea, that this was science fiction decades ago, forward-thinking, very interesting science fiction. The idea was, could we come up with, with, with a small set of rules such that if robots would follow those rules, everything was bound to be okay? And what I'd say is that you rapidly figure out that actually some small set of rules is never going to be enough to be able to, to figure out how to act appropriately in all the different settings we find ourselves. And actually, I would suggest that... Um, Asimov knew that it was really a plot device to allow him to get into interesting situations where things would go wrong and, and the, 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 the robot would find itself in this weird dilemma and, and think things would, would go astray. It's very difficult to codify exactly what we should do in all settings. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a big open area. How can we, well first it's a, it's a big difficult thing to figure out what values we would like an AI to have. Because actually different people have different value systems and they evolve over time. Um, but even if we could figure out what values we want a robot to have, another problem is how do we ensure that they get into that? That's called the value loading problem. And then how do we actually verify that it really has got them, police them carefully? All of these are, are difficult areas that are open challenges.
think the gentleman was the next. Turn the lights on, that would do it. <laughs> so what, what, what would make someone comfortable to get into an autonomous vehicle? So that, that's a great question. This is sort of more a question about, in practice, um, psychologically and sociologically, what gets people to trust systems? We're moving from the question of maybe whether people should trust a device to actually what does make them trust a device. And it's a, it's a great question. I would suggest that uh, we're creatures who are very influenced by those around us. So maybe five, 10 years ago, many people were very nervous perhaps about going on Facebook because they were worried about the potential loss of privacy, but they saw other people were going on Facebook and nothing really bad seemed to be happening. And they were aware that because their friend was on Facebook, Facebook was learning stuff about them anyway. So they were kind of motivated to get on themselves and we're kind of uh, falling down this, this slippery slope where everyone ends up going on without really thinking that carefully about whether it's okay or not. And I think those kinds of social forces are very likely to be important in what actually happens, and that's in potentially a concern. Sure, yes. Um, so the idea there is, is, is specifically for that very core cool bridge, um, they're building a, 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 a virtual model of that bridge, a so-called digital twin, which is meant to replicate as exactly as possible everything that's going on inside that bridge. So you can try to predict exactly how will it will perform and behave if various things happen, if the wind blows a certain strength, a certain number of people walk across it, things like that. And um, that model is constantly being refined over time because the model is being compared against what's actually going on and updates are being made to the model, make it more and more accurate. And uh, there, there's an idea that over time we might have digital twins of lots of structures, lots of devices, potentially, eventually, even of, of the way that maybe all the traffic in, in Cambridge works together or something like that to enable us to, to, to plan and simulate uh, much carefully and fig figure out how we might want to do things in the real world, but by being able to, to do it in, in the virtual world, which is much safer. Well, it's a matter of opinion, but I would suggest much harder to predict what people typically are going to do. But you, you may be able to predict it en masse. So, so th there are crowd monitoring systems, which can be important in a, in a football match or at concerts, trying to help figure out whether people uh, are like stampede in one direction or another, if something bad happens, and trying to model that. So there is you know, some, some ability to model crowds, but individuals are, of course, difficult. Absolutely. So that, that's, a, that's a, a very sensible idea, which, which actually people are doing already. So basically, you'd like to have as many sensors, as many sensors as you can, to help uh, give you as much information as possible from different modes and different perspectives. On, on a, on a self-driving car, you'll have regular cameras. You might have lidar. You might have all sorts of sensors, which actually people don't have. And yes, you could have a redundancy of systems. Anything you can to make it uh, robust would be helpful. Although, of course, there's potentially a trade-off with greater power use or or other resource use. So, you know, are you better putting all your resources into one great system or several uh, less good systems? But often, it does turn out to be very effective to have an ensemble method of different approaches. What's the experience previous 
it's going to depend on the situation. That's a great question, uh, and there's there's a significant difference of opinion in the community. Um, some people, so so so, so I'll, I'll try to try and give uh, a bit bit of a balanced perspective. So so I think uh, some people would say that if we are able to to build machines which have broadly human levels of intelligence, um, in the sense of being able to learn general concepts and abstract them and develop new things. The one observation is actually once they are already at a human level, very quickly they'll be way beyond human because we, we, we're constantly seeing um, great increases in, in capabilities of machines just through having more com compute power, more memory. Um, already machines are actually clearly superhuman in, in many specific domains. They can add up numbers much better than us. They can play chess much better than us. So if, if it can do everything a human can at about human level, it will already be superhuman in some, some areas and will, will quickly surpass us. And if it, if it does that, and if it's able to keep designing itself to, to be better and better and better, um, there's an idea that very quickly you'll reach what's called a singularity where it just sort of takes off and, uh, uh, and we have this incredibly intelligent uh, system of AI. Uh, if that were to happen, then I think it's reasonable to suggest that that is arguably the, uh, the most significant thing in the history of mankind and the most significant thing maybe even in the history of the planet. So I think it does make sense to think a bit about it. There's a lot of debate about when it might happen. Some people will say in a few decades, some people might say not for millennia. But even if it's millennia away, because it's such a big event, I think it makes sense to start to think about it. However, it can be a bit difficult to figure out what to do about it. So what many of us want to do, because, because it's gonna be so intelligent, it's hard to know what to deal with. Uh, so I'm a fan of saying, let's try to expand our, our, our toolbox by adding uh, various abilities like the ones we've talked about, transparency, fairness, robustness, which are likely to be useful, which are useful now and will be likely to be useful in the future. Do we have time for one more question? He's been very okay, patient. Okay, one more question. That's, that's a great and deep question. I'll just give a, a, a quick comment on it, which is that some people, because of that, advocate for creating machines which can really feel pain, because then they'll have a, a reason not to do something wrong. <laughs> but then if machine can really feel pain, well then do we have some obligation not to cause it pain? Just like we have an obligation to people. And it gets tricky, so interesting. Well, uh, thank you very much everyone for coming this evening. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time now, but uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Weller for absolutely <laughs>